All right, we are in a series on uh, the book of John, and we're looking at John chapter 6, and we, we've been in John chapter 6 for a while. And, and I, I want to say this because it, it sounds kind of self-serving to hype my own sermons, but John chapter 6 is, it has been such a great, I have, I have such an awesome time in going through this. I feel like there's so much depth there that oftentimes um, we kind of read over it, and we don't capture, we don't see, uh, and because you have to kind of take your time and actually spend some time in it to actually see how, how incredible the sermon that Jesus preaches in John chapter 6, how incredible it is. So if you haven't heard them, I would encourage you to, to listen to them because they all point to what's going to happen right now in John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. And so we're going to look at that this morning, and I want to read that passage If you have it, your Bible, or on your phone, you can follow along, or you can just listen, right? Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Now, this is everything that Jesus has said before. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, through, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So what has happened in this chapter? At the very beginning, we see Jesus doing the feeding of the 5,000, which really should be the feeding of the fifteen to 20,000, but uh, we, we don't know the exact number. And so he fed them. So then he comes back to the other side of the lake, comes to Capernaum, and, and he preaches a sermon. He teaches, which really what he does is he explains what the, the feeding of the 5,000, what that sign meant. And then he explains it in a, in a fairly, uh, at least for, for in, in Scripture, a long and detailed sermon. He applies the sign. He tells them it's not what you do. They want to know what can we do? What, what can we do to get... To, to, to honor God, to, to, to get closer to God, to get this eternal life. And he said, it's not what you do, it's that you believe. He said, he, he quickly cut, off, cut them off right there. It's what you believe. He talked about being the bread of life. Now, we took a little time on this, but I want to say it again because we've got a lot of people, you know, oftentimes we have a lot of people who are new. There's two words for life in the Greek. There's bios and there's zoe. Bios is material, eating, drinking, life, breathing, just being physically alive. And then there's zoe. Zoe is another type of life. Zoe is life, but it's life with meaning, with purpose. Life that's full of something that, that enables a person to, to, to accomplish and do things because it's a purposeful, meaningful life. And Jesus tacks the word eternal onto zoe. So he says this is a spiritual life. There's a spiritual life, and he says it's available now, right now, and off into the future. So that it's a life that encompasses all forms. It just goes and goes and goes, and it's a life 
that has meaning and purpose and vitality. It's a life worth living. And he says, I've come to bring you that kind of life that only comes from me. That's the only place that's going to come from is, is through you believing in me, this Zoe life. And he tells him, I'm the bread of the Zoe life. And then he tells him, but the bread has to be broken. So he begins to lay the groundwork for letting them know that he is going to die for them, for the sins of the whole world. And so he's leading up to that. He's making some claims. He's, he's asserting that he is God. He's laying all this, this foundational work for them to understand about him and who he is. And as I lead into this sermon, I was thinking about that because what, he's, what we're going to see here is something that's very key. You know, uh, years ago when I worked with youth, I, I, we, we would take them to this camp. It's a camp that Jose, our associate pastor, used to work at. And, and this, this was an adventure camp. It had just all kinds of crazy things that you could do there. And they had a ropes course. All camps have ropes course now. But the, their ropes course, they had in three levels, they had, they had you know, a low course that was just about a foot off the ground, and I excelled at that. And then they had some medium areas. And then they had the high course. And I did not excel at that. I didn't even attempt it because I'm afraid of heights. And so for years, I took 50, 60, 80 kids, teenagers to this camp, and I wouldn't do the high course. I did everything else they had because it didn't involve getting in a high spot. And, uh, and one day, the, they were berating me and making fun of me, mocking me, which every prophet is without honor in his own youth group. Um, and, and some of the camp staff were joining in. The camp director was mocking me. And finally, I said, you know what? If it'll just shut you guys up, I'll go up there. And, and they said, great. They said, great. And they explained to me how safe it is, right? They always explain to you how safe it is. I know they need to do that, but they put, hook you up and they, you know, you've got this thing and then you've got a person who's your belay. That's the person who's at the bottom who is holding the rope, you know, and, and has a special thing where even if they let go of the rope, it just cinches. And so that it comes to a stop. Of course, I noticed that the person who's going to belay me is a girl who is not big. All right. I don't, just this little girl. And I said, okay, we've got a problem here. Because it'll just be like, zip, like that, if I fall. And they said, oh, no, no, no. We also anchor her to this huge post that has been hammered into the ground. And I was like, oh. And they're like, see, it's safe. And I say, yes, I hear you telling me that. And so the first thing was climb the climbing wall that goes up. And it, it was, a pro- I, you know, I don't know the exact, 12,000 feet, I think. I'm not sure. Um, it was 60 feet. And, and I, to my incredible surprise, I climbed it. So I climbed the climbing wall. I got up on the platform. And the next thing is this bridge, this rope bridge. It's got a thick rope for you to walk on and two, two ropes like this. I'm going to walk right out of the picture. Sorry for those at home. And two ropes like this that you can hold on to. And then you are hooked to a wire that's right above you in, in case you fall. And uh, so I got up to the top and I said, I Maybe, maybe I can conquer my fear of heights. And then I looked down. And I was like, oh, my goodness. What? Is there another way? Are there steps? Is there a ladder? I just want to go down. And so now I'm up there, and everybody's making fun of me. They're all staying around watching. It's become a, an event. 
people are selling popcorn and drinks. Watch the youth pastor wet his pants, is, was I think what they were saying. And so I started out on this rope bridge. And if you've ever been on one of those things, I mean, a lot, I know some of you have. It's, it's just like this. And all of a sudden, I realized something. I'm attached to the wire. So I just grabbed the wire. And now it's easy. And they're yelling, no, that's cheating. Let go of the wire. I'm like, no, I'm not going to let go of the wire. Trust, trust. You've got to trust. If you fall, it will catch you. I don't trust. I don't trust. You know, I'm just up there like this. I don't trust. I don't trust. You know, there's no place like home. And I'm scared out of my wits. And I'm going across this thing. And I said, they said, be the kind of person that trusts. And then, you know, then it gets mean. They're like, you're a youth pastor. You're telling people to trust Jesus. Trust the rope. And I'm like, I trust Jesus. I don't trust the rope. And I don't plan on seeing Jesus today. You know, I'm not really into this. And so I I remember thinking, I am not giving up control of this. I am grabbing where I'm not supposed to grab. I don't care what they say. And they're like, if you fall that that wire will hurt your hand. I'm not, no, it's studying, I'm holding on. I don't want to give up control. I don't want to give up control. That was the bottom line of it. I didn't want to trust something or someone else because I didn't want to give up control. We are there right now. This passage, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. I want you to see, first of all, verses 60 to 66, the offense. Verse 60 on hearing it, on hearing Jesus' teaching. And the center of Jesus' teaching was, you have to give up control. I have, to be the, I have to be the center of your life. I am the zoe. My words are the zoe. They're life. You've got to take them in. And so upon hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, notice here, very these are disciples, These are people who have said, man, Jesus, we've seen you do miracles. We've heard your, we believe you're the Messiah. We will follow you. We will follow you wherever you go. And suddenly they're going, I don't like where he's gone. This is not what I expected. This is not what I wanted. I don't want to give up control. They'd been with him for a while. They'd heard him. They'd seen him. They committed themselves to him. And suddenly they said, this is a hard teaching. And by hard, that word actually means this. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to accept. That's what it means. Sometimes in the course of studying, uh, I'll go on to websites. Uh, there's a, quite a few of them. Uh, some of them you have to pay to be on. It's not a big fee. But then you get a hold of all of these these research papers, academic papers, uh, very technical papers, and oftentimes I, I, I don't understand them. They're, they're too deep for me. They're on something that I'm very interested in, but it's a little bit above my level. So what I do, this is, here you go, you read the abstract, and then you read the conclusion, because I can understand them. And all the technical data between, I just kind of skim over, because It's too hard to understand. But that's not what they're saying here. They're saying it's hard because I don't want to do it. That kind of understand. I don't want to accept this. 
And he said, this is too hard. To, this is too hard. Who can accept this? This is something that we talk about. We say, we, 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 uh, they're saying this. I hear him. I see him. I agree so far. Now he's saying something I don't like, so I'm out. We do that. We can do that. God does, God does something. God allows something that we don't like, and it shakes us to our core. And what that does is that reveals in small ways where our relationship with God can kind of be transactional. Like, God, I do this, this, this. You bless me with this. You know, that, that whole thing. And God is not a transactional God. That's not how he works. Because if he was transactional, he wouldn't be God. Because the whole point is God can see things that we can never see. And so sometimes he doesn't do what we think is the absolutely best thing to do because he sees more of the picture. He sees things that, that could play out that we would not see. And so we have these people, their relationship has become transactional. I'm in as long as he does, as long as he teaches what I want to hear. But the core of this is I'm in control. That's what's going on with these people. They're deciding I'm in control. I am not giving up full control. I'm not giving my life to Jesus Christ. And we see that played out even earlier, earlier in the passage. What did they say? They say, oh, we want that life. What do we have to do to get it? They phrase it in that frame. What do we have to do to get that life? And that's when Jesus comes back and says, you don't do anything. You just believe. You just believe because God is not transactional. And so what are they not accepting? What is the offense here? Jesus is saying, I want to be your meat and your drink. What does that mean to them? I want to be at the center. I want all of you. This is required for you to live the eternal life, to live Zoe life. This is required. It's a lordship statement. I want to be at the center of your life. You must give up control. And so the question becomes for us, what is your meat and drink? For some people, you know, we have all the obvious. Some people, it's career success. If I get this promotion, have you ever said that? If I get this promotion, if I could just get this raise, then what? I would be happy? Is that how it works all the time? If I could get this house, then. If I could get this car, then I would be happy. You know, you get a new car, and it is fun, and it is nice for a while. But after a while, it's not a new car anymore. And then the next one comes along. And so for people, it could be career success. It could be relationships. It could be material things and money, the obvious things. It could be to know that somebody needs you and how that makes you feel important. It could be a sexual relationship. It could be so many things. But the question is, what is your meat and drink? Jesus is saying, I don't want to just be your teacher. I don't want to be your inspiration. I don't want to be your example. Now, he is a teacher. He is an inspiration. He is an example. But his point is, he's saying, I want to be your center. I want to be you, absolute you. He's telling them, and he's telling us, that if you look anywhere else for meaning, anything else to be the center, anything else to be your zoe, it will fail you. That person will fail you. That thing will fail you. That job, that promotion, that good feeling that you get from being, it will fail you. 
and you will starve spiritually. You will starve. And, you know, we see this play out publicly and privately all the time. I was reading the other day um, about a uh, basketball player. Um, he, he, uh, when I was in college, sometimes we'd head over to the University of Maryland. We weren't far from the University of Maryland. And we'd go into Cole Fieldhouse, a few of us, and we'd try to get in pickup games. And sometimes the Maryland basketball team would finish their practice, and a bunch of their players would, would come out and get in the pickup games with us. And so sometimes we, we played with these guys. Three, three of that team went to the pros. And one of them I was reading about, he, he went to the pros. He did fairly well, but, I mean, he still, he made a lot of money. And, and when, he, when he retired from basketball, his, his life just crashed. It just went downhill because since the age of five or four, that was all his life. That was his Zoe. And then it ended, and he got into drugs, and, and he just threw away millions of dollars over five or six years. And, uh, and he, became, he, he died young. And, and I think that I see that. I see what happened. His Zoe was taken away. Oh, it took a while. It took 28 years. But he lost his Zoe. And then he was lost and he starved. You know, we see this with people when their careers end. We see this with couples, you know. When the kids leave the house, when our kids left our house, my wife and I were kind of like, oh, and we we're kind of like, yeah, yes, we can do whatever we want, you know, and don't have to worry what the kids think. And then suddenly it was like, man, so what do we do? We just spent 30-something years parenting. What do we do now? And so what's happening here? Jesus is telling them, what are you searching? What are you, what are you trusting in? What's your meat and drink? What's your Zoe? And he says, it has to be me. It has to be me. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. You know, remember, we talked about how the Jews were okay. The Jews were okay with the idea that a celestial being could come down to earth temporarily. They'd seen that happen in, over the course of their history. Angels, times where God kind of appeared to them in, in, in some sort of form that was human-like. They, they were okay with that. They were okay with a human being, appo- being appointed by God to present a message. That would be like a prophet, like John the Baptist. They were okay with somebody having a divine message, a human being, but having a divine message. That was their idea of the Messiah. What they were not okay with is the idea that God would actually become a human being. That was something they would not accept. They could not accept. It just went against everything they had been taught. And so his claim to be the bread and the drink, they understood to be a claim on their life that only God could make. And they did not want to believe that Jesus was from heaven. In that, in that sermon, if you remember, they stop and they go, wait a minute. We saw you as a baby. We saw you grow up. We sat in synagogue teach, you know, being taught. We sat with you. Yeah, you were a really good student, but dude, you're not God. 
They couldn't accept that. They'd become so used to him that he didn't seem supernatural to them. So they knew he was from earth. They'd seen him grow up. They couldn't understand this. And what is he teaching them here? He's teaching them that this is not about crude literalism. You know, he's saying this is about spirit. The spirit gives life. The words I have spoken to you, they're full of spirit and zoe, he says. I'm not talking about bios. I'm talking about spiritual. The Holy Spirit brings this Zoe life. It's not mere eating and drinking. We're going to have communion in a moment. This communion is not going to give us spiritual life. Only Jesus can give us spiritual life. He says, my words, my words are the conduit for the Spirit and for life. The Holy Spirit brings his words to us. Then in verse 64, he says, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them do not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So they're choosing. He says, you're choosing not to believe. You're making this choice. This is too hard. I don't like it. I don't like how this impacts my life. And and we can do that. So many times we can pick and choose what what, what scriptures we like and which ones we don't like, the ones we'll pay attention to, the ones we won't pay attention to. And he says, you you can't do that because this is what they're doing. And this is the scary point. We can fall into that too. And Jesus, he reminds them of what he said earlier. There's an enabling that God brings to belief. It doesn't destroy the voluntary character of faith. It's a part of it. It's like in Mark 9 when the man said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus honored that statement. He said, Jesus, I want to admit to you, I want to admit to you that I'm having doubts. And Jesus honored that. And this is a... You know, I think about this. This is such a poignant moment. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. He knew that this was necessary. Think of the burden that must have been his three years. Every time he saw Judas, he knew. And he didn't treat him differently. In fact, we know at the Lord's Supper, the last supper before he dies, the last Passover before he dies, Jesus gives Judas the seat of honor. The seat of honor is on the right and the left of the host who is in charge of the meal. And Jesus puts John in one seat. They recline. John there and Judas right next to him. I don't, I, it's hard for me to imagine. Knowing, knowing what was going to happen that night. That night. It's almost, like, it's almost like Jesus is saying, Judas, you got one more shot, dude. I'm going to show you. I don't hate you. I love you. You're important. He treated him just like all the others. It helps us to think about, it helps me to think about when we deal with difficult people. We deal with difficult people all the time. Keep in mind that Jesus walked and laughed and cried and prayed and taught and did miracles with Judas for three years, knowing Judas was going to betray him and didn't say one thing to him. So that when you're dealing with that person that just ticks you off, you know, understand Jesus dealt with that person who was going to be the one who betrayed him to his death. So we see the offense. Second thing we see is the confession, verses 67 to 71. In uh, 
67, Jesus says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus turns to his closest friends. This kind of a tender, loving moment. All these people are like, and they're leaving. All these people who said, Rabbi, I want to follow you. And suddenly they go, okay, that's a little, that's just, you're crazy. And they start leaving. And Jesus looks at the 12 and goes, you guys going? You staying? And Peter says, man, Lord, where do we go? Where do we go? And we have this incredible declaration of belief. One theologian wrote this. He said, this is the great irreducible irreducible minimum of what it means to be a Christian. He turns to Peter. He turns to the disciples. And he he basically says, this is a step too far for all of these people. How about you guys? Everyone else wants relevance and meaning and purpose. Everyone else, they, they, they want that Zoe life, but they're not willing to give themselves to me totally. They're not willing to give me their family. They're not willing to give me their career. They're not willing to give me their money, their relationships, their sex life, their hopes, their dreams, their whole life. They're not willing. It's too big of an ask. What say you? And Peter, who can be capable of such foolish, hurtful statements at times, he gives this this simple statement, this elegant statement of profound wisdom. Because the first thing he says is, to whom shall we go? You think about that. This is a declaration. This is an admission of inadequacy. Where else are we going to go? I can't do this on my own. I can't find the Zoe life on my own. I can't do it. Jesus, I'm inadequate. I can't do it. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless in this matter. Where else am I going to go? I've tried it. I can't find it. And then he says, he says, where else do we go? And then Jesus, and then Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Peter echoes back what Jesus has just been teaching. He says, you have the words of eternal Zoe. Your words are That's what brings it to us. See, Peter was listening. He gets the sermon. He understands, and it just hits him. There's nowhere else to go. The the gold is right here. Why do I want to go hunting for scraps over there when I realize it's all right here? So he admits he's hopeless. He admits that Jesus is the key, that Jesus has the words of life. And then the third thing he says is, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe, we know, we trust you, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. Now, this is an incredible statement that that Peter has just made. It's amazing that a Jew would say this. And let me say you why. In the Old Testament, the Bible refers over and over in in different times, uh, different passages to the Holy One. It's always God. The Holy One of Israel is the God of Israel. And suddenly, Peter says here, he sees... He says, you're the Holy One of God. And, and where did he get that? Well, interestingly, in earlier in Jesus' uh, uh, ministry, he was confronted by a demon-possessed man, and the demon spoke. And the demon said this, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He says it a little differently than we have it all those other times in, in the Old Testament. He says, you're the Holy One of God. And Peter echoes this. It's interesting. Peter learned a lesson from a demon. He says, 
He says, you're the Holy One of God. You're not just the Holy One of Israel. You're God, the God, all over the whole earth God, the ruler of everything. And this leaves no doubt that this is God. And Peter, who is speaking, he says, we know this. He's speaking for the disciples. Leave no doubt that he realizes it too. And you can see why someone said, here we, here we are. This is this great irreducible minimum of what it means to be a Christian because it, it recognizes man's hopelessness. It recognizes Christ's ability to bring the life that is needed, the necessity of faith. It recognizes that Jesus is God and therefore he has the power. This is what I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It humbles us and it exalts us all at the same time. The gospel humbles us because it tells us you can't do it. You can't do it on your own. You just can't do it. There's none righteous. No, not one, Paul says. And the gospel exalts us because it says you are worth so much to Jesus Christ, that so much to God that he sent his son to die for you. You are worth an infinite amount to God. So it brings us down and lifts us up all at the same time. How does that help us when we live? Because here's how it helps us. It makes us understand everyone's, everyone can't do it. We're all in the same boat. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible when God is involved. Nobody's perfect. We're all in the same boat. We're all inadequate. But every person you see, every person, even that person, that one that drives you over the edge, was worth Jesus going to the cross for. Because we're made in the image of God, we have infinite worth. Infinite worth. So we really need to be careful when we just blow people off. Because what we're doing is we're blowing off some of God's masterpiece. We're blowing off someone who's created in the image of God. We can't say, I don't care about those people. We can't say that because Jesus died for those people. And so he says, you're the holy one of God. I just want to say one or two quick things about this word holy. I'm not doing it justice. At some point, we need to go on a rabbit trail and really talk about this. Holy, in the Greek, it's hagias. In, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew, it's kadosh. And uh, I always think in um, Kung Fu Dragon when he does the snap and it's like kadosh. I don't know why I think that, but I do. That's how I think. So holy is this word. In fact, in the, in the Old Testament, we see the angels surrounding the throne and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What are they? they repeat it three times. We know, when, we know when you repeat something twice, it's putting extra, extra, extra. Three times is considered the most you can put emphasis on a word. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, holiness, kadosh, means to, the, the irreducible minimum, you go down, it means to cut. Kind of, it means to be cut off. It means to be separate from everything else, something that stands totally alone. It also has, uh, like you're in a class of your own. It also has the idea of, of a holiness that is absolutely pure morally all the time in every way possible. And so what do, you, what do we do when we figure out what that word means? It means something that stands totally alone, absolutely pure, and absolute, morally pure. And in a class by itself, there's nothing like it. 
the Lord of hosts occupies a moral space that is not occupied by anyone else. And so it becomes difficult for us to experience or give it some sort of frame of reference for who he is because he's holy in everything. He's holy in justice. He's holy in love. He's holy in mercy. He's holy in power. He's holy in sovereignty. He's holy in wisdom. He's holy in patience. He's holy in anger. He's holy in grace. He's holy in faithfulness. He's holy in compassion. Holy, holy, holy. I went to to graduate school at the University of Maryland for a short period of time, a very short period of time, I might add. But I got involved with the Campus Crusade uh, crew, and um, I, I... Went with a guy one time. We went to the athletics dorm. University of Maryland, at least at that time, had a separate dorm for the athletes. All the scholarship athletes were in a separate dorm. And so um, we're going up to visit a couple of players that are in a Bible study. And so we go to this elevator, and we're, we're, we go to the top. We meet some guys, and then we're getting ready to come down, and the elevator opens. And uh, this basket, one of, the, one of the, the center for the Maryland Terrapins, gets, he's almost seven feet tall. And I'm just like, holy, holy, holy. Wow, he's big, right? So then we go to a different floor, come back to the elevator, we're waiting, and, and the elevator opens, and it's a, it's a new guy on the University of Maryland football team. He's, 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 one of, he's a, their, their left tackle. I can't remember his name, but he was 6'8", but he weighed 310 pounds. There was no one else in the elevator because there was no room in the elevator for anyone else and this guy walked out, and I'm like, huge, huge, huge. He's holy, holy, holy. He's huge. He's gigantic. It's, it's like you're in a class all by your, all your own. This is God, morally pure, in a class all of his own. And he says, I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. I want to share this with you. So why does holiness matter? Really quick, it matters because without holiness of God, there'd be no moral law. It underwrites the grand narrative of Scripture. Without the holiness of God, there would be no divine anger over sin. Without the holiness of God, there would be no perfect son. Without the holiness of God, there'd be no vindication of the resurrection. There'd be no final defeat of Satan. There would be no hope of a new heaven and earth where this holiness will reign over us. In other words, it undergirds everything. God's holiness undergirds everything we read in the Bible. It provides comfort to us. Evil will not win in the long run. Justice will prevail in the long run. Corruption is not king. Satan will not win. So it comforts us. It can convict us. God's holiness shows us our shortfall. It calls us to holy living. It says now, with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be holy as he is holy. And finally, holiness leads us to celebrate his grace. Because of his grace, we're accepted and not rejected by him. Because of his grace, we're comforted. Because of his grace, we become aware of the gravity of the sin that infects all of us and what it took for him to to make that right. Because of grace, we run to God for help and not run away from him in fear. So all of these things, holiness teaches us, shapes us, and molds us, so that when Peter says, you are the Holy One of Israel, he's saying an incredible statement. 
An incredible statement. You occupy a place, Jesus, that no one else can be in. You're totally different from all of us. You're totally separate from all of us because you are holy and you are God. And Jesus, in that sermon, begins pointing them towards the cross. And then he tells us, Paul writes to us in in Corinthians, he says, now, now, do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to go to the Lord's table. And what we'll do is, Two people will be up on either side. And if you just come up the sides and then go back down the middle, um, you sit, you eat and drink at your, on, on your terms, at your time. You can, you can pray beforehand. You can eat and drink right away. Whatever you are comfortable with, you can do that. These are uh, little cups that are, you know, COVID safe, whatever. And there's a clear part that you pull off, and then there's a wafer. And then there's the purple top you pull off, and it's the grape juice. Last time we did this, I know a lot of us had trouble with these because they're tricky, but do the best you can. <laughs> it's the best we have right now. Um, so we're going to celebrate that, and I'll ask now. I'm going to pray and then just uh, mention one or two things about that if the men will come forward. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you are holy. That's our only hope. We, haven't, we just can't do it without you. Lord, help us to uncover in our lives more and more areas that we have been withholding from you and turn them over to you. And in doing that, we begin to live the Zoe life more and more, this process of living and honoring you. God, we thank you that we can be called daughters and sons of the Most High God. What an incredible privilege that we have to look at being able to live this eternal life, this eternal Zoe, right here, right now on this earth, and then off into the future, infinity with you, living and learning and discovering and growing. We thank you that you have called us to that. And Lord, that you sent your son to enable enable us to be able to come to you. His death on the cross enables us now to become your child. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.